0: Well, there is a, an app that you can uh, get that distorts people's faces. It's called Snapchat. It's quite the rage. I don't have it on my phone, but my daughter does, so I asked her to take my picture, and this is what it shows. <laughs> I don't get it. It doesn't look any different than the way I usually look. To distort means to twist something out of its original shape. And that's what we find happening today in our story from the book of Samuel. It is the story of the transition from the rule of local judges to the monarchy and how the leaders in the process distorted God's plan. It begins with a certain man named Elkanah, but it's not really about a man at all. It's about a woman named Hannah, his wife, and she's an unhappy woman. She's unhappy because she can't have any children. Kind of seems to be a reoccurring theme in our stories from the Old Testament. And her husband's other wife, Penaniah, does have children. And this other wife is a real jerk about it, okay? She takes every opportunity To rub it in. And when does she choose to rub it in? When they go up to the tabernacle located in Shiloh to worship God. And so, whenever Hannah is in church, she feels like crap. Elkanah tries to console her. He says, Hannah, why do you weep? Why is your heart sad? Am I not worth more than 10 sons to you? Kind of a clueless guy, isn't he? (laughs) I'm sure he wasn't quite that special. And I can imagine that she rolled her eyes and thought to herself, my mother was so right about this guy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Hannah goes in the tabernacle to pray and maybe to get away from her husband for a few minutes, and and she prays. She really prays. I mean, she's bawling her eyes out. And she begins by saying, God, remember me. God, don't forget me. She's in misery, and it feels like God has gone off to people who are more worthy than she is. But then she makes a a bargain with God. She says, God, if you'll give me a son, I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. Uh, You may remember two weeks ago, we learned about the vow of the Nazarite, Samson, and uh, there were two things, three things they were to stay away from. One of them was from alcohol, and the second thing was what? They were to not get their haircuts. And so they were setting themselves apart to God as this expression of loyalty and and dedication to God. And so she bargains. Not always a good idea, but let's face it, that's our basic instinct. How many of you have ever made a bargain with God about something? Sure, we all have. And uh, anyhow, basically she says, God, I'll do something for you if you'll do something for me. Well, in the midst of this personal tragedy, there's this little bit of humor. Uh, Hannah is praying fervently, but she's praying silently. I mean, can you picture it? She's moving her lips, but nothing is coming out. And the priest Eli, he sees this odd behavior, and he comes to the conclusion that she is what? Inebriated. That she's had one too many beers at the local church festival. And he calls her on it. And she says, no, no, my Lord. I'm not drunk, but I am pouring my soul out to the Lord. And Eli says, go in peace and may God grant you your petition. And God does. He answers the prayer. He gives her the son that she asked for, not so much because Hannah is such a great negotiator, but because this baby is to be a part of the plan of God for the future of Israel. And because God has kept his side of the bargain, Hannah keeps hers. And when the child is old enough, she takes him to Eli to the sanctuary at Shiloh and she says, "For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition which I asked of him. Therefore I am lending him to the Lord as long as he lives. He shall be lent to the Lord." Now, I think that's pretty amazing. This woman prayed so long, so hard for a child, and when the child comes, she gives him up. She lends him to the Lord. And I've tried to think, you know, as a parent, as a grandparent, how I've tried to imagine the the emotions that Hannah experienced as she did that, as she gave her son up to the temple service. And yet we've all experienced that, and perhaps, and, and witnessed that. Certainly the, the Putmans, they just sent their daughter off back again to Romania as a missionaries, and families like the Huffers and the Jacobis have, we watched our children grow up, and then they go off to serve God in other parts of the world. It's a hard thing. But there's also that deep pride in seeing somebody follow their calling. Well, Samuel grows up to be one of the greatest judges and prophets and leaders in all of Israel, and he is remembered by you and me as, as, as the, the kingmaker, for he anoints both Saul and David as kings over Israel. But there's a reason why. Uh, there's a reason why Samuel becomes such a great leader, and we find it in the last verse in chapter 2. The author writes this, the boy ministered before the Lord Under Eli, the priest. And so you see, Eli was investing himself into this young man. In chapter 3, we have the remarkable story of Samuel's calling. And it begins by saying, The word of the Lord was rare in those days. And so the religious climate is, is dry. There's not much going on, not much happening. People were not used to hearing from the Lord. And, and verse 7 says that Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And Samuel is sleeping when he, he hears his name being called. And he thinks it's Eli in the, in the room next door. And so he gets out of bed and he, he goes over to Eli's room. He knocks on the door and, and Eli says, what do you want? You called my name no, I I didn't go back to bed. Samuel goes back to bed. Again, he hears this voice, Samuel. He gets up, he trots into Eli's room, and Eli says, no, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Stop bothering me. But then it happens a third time. God is wonderfully persistent. And this time Eli realizes that something supernatural is going on here. He says, go back to bed, but this time when the voice comes, respond. Verse 8, Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. And I wonder, what what if Eli had had not been spiritually sensitive enough to realize what was going on? What would have happened to Samuel and to the mission of God if, if Eli hadn't perceived, if he hadn't discerned that God was calling Samuel? Now, here's the ironic part of the story. Uh, At the same time that Eli is guiding, the same time Eli is investing into into Samuel's life, he seems to be ignoring his own sons, Phinehas and and Hophni. Chapter 2, verse 12 says, Eli's sons were scoundrels. (laughs) They had no regard for the Lord. And so they are two of the most corrupt priests in the Bible and, and, and they are the sons of a priest. So they are PKs. They are preacher's kids. They're the first PKs in the Bible to go bad. And they won't be the last ones, let me tell you. And the author of 1 Samuel clearly lays the blame at Eli's feet, chapter 3, verse 13, because his sons were blaspheming God, and Eli did not restrain them. I mean, if anybody ought to be living a a God honoring life, it it ought to be these two. But they're not. They're phonies. They're fakes. And they're giving religion a bad name. And the people don't like them. Friends, there, there is so much power in living the Christian life. So much power in us, you and I, being the real deal. You know, Jesus said, let your light shine before others. They may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. You see, when when people see you and I lead our life, they they can get a glimpse of God. They they can see how God originally designed this world to work. and, And they may even ask you, tell me, what's different about you? Why are you the way that you are, and it may give you an open door to say something like, I live this way because I'm a Christ follower. It can be such a wonderful witness to the love of God. I mean, think about how we could, we could be light by how we live our lives, and we can do it by how we treat each other, by, by how we choose to honor and love one another, to be devoted and, and faithful to each other. One of our members shared last week how his surgeon prayed with him before surgery. How cool is that? I mean, think if there was a a Christian doctor or nurse in in the hospital, a a Christian lawyer in the practice, a a Christian teacher in the school, a, a Christian business person, flight attendant, truck driver, whatever, just living a life of integrity in whatever they do to live out what we believe, to be real and to be authentic, nothing fake, nothing phony, just trying your best to follow Jesus, how we could change the world. Jesus was running into this phoniness with some of the religious leaders of his day And finally, it comes to a head. You can even hear Jesus' anger in Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to be people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. they were trying to look good on the outside, but inside, they were dead. When I came to to faith in Christ, I was a freshman in college. And shortly afterwards, it was a summer night, and I was walking down Court Street, my hometown, when I ran into some of my old friends from high school, and one of them said, hey, Mark, we're going to go buy some some marijuana and smoke it. You want to come along and party? And I really didn't, but I did want to hang out with them. And so I said, sure, I'll go. And as we're walking along, one of them said to me, he said, Mark, I heard that your family has become religious. Is that right? And I never really liked that word, religion. So I said, eh, you know, n- not really. And I kind of hoped that would be the end of the conversation. But it wasn't. <laughs> he asked me a second time. He said, you know, I heard that, that you're going to church now. And uh, I said, yeah, yeah, kind of. But, you know, it's not a big deal. <laughs> I'm trying to change the subject, you know. And then he said a third time. He said, uh, in fact, I heard that your whole family had become Christians. I'm getting really, really uncomfortable. <laughs> I said, you know, uh, I, I, can we just not talk about it? And then I thought to myself, Mark, you're such a hypocrite. You say one thing and you do another. I said, guys, not going with you. And I went home, I went to my room, and I cried. And I told God, I am so sorry. Please forgive this wishy-washy Christian Christian. God, I will never go with the crowd again. I want you all of the time, and I want to stand up. I want to be counted as one of your followers. And I've tried hard to be faithful to that promise. I can tell you I have failed many, many times. But here's the thing. I just want to be real. I want to live what I say. And I want to live to be more in tune with the cross. And I do with the crowd. Well, fast forward to chapter 8. Samuel is now an old man, and like Eli, he's not done a great job raising his children. And verse 3 says, But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, they accepted bribes, and they perverted justice. And so the elders come to Samuel, and they ask that he appoint a king to rule over them like the other nations. And Samuel, he's reluctant to crown a king. He, he knew that that power and self-interest will always corrupt the person of character, but God says to him, go ahead, Samuel, and, and, and do it. And so chapter 9 describes how, how Samuel went about choosing Saul to be the next king. And that through a series of God-directed events, Samuel and, and Saul meet. And, and so Samuel anoints Saul with oil. And he announces to him that three uh, supernatural signs will authenticate this anointing, this, this crowning of Saul. That he would meet two men at Rachel's tomb who would give him a report on his father's lost donkeys, Okay, and number three, that, he, that three men he would meet and would give him loaves of bread. Okay, <laughs> and then lastly, he would meet a, a band of prophets, and the Spirit of God would come upon him and empower him for this new leadership role. Well, all three of these signs take place, and verse 9 says, God gave Saul another heart. And so Saul looks like the perfect king. I mean, he's got all the qualities that you and I look for in a great leader, right? He's good looking. He's tall. He's head and shoulders about everybody, above everybody else. I mean, what more do you need? His father, Kish, is described as wealthy and powerful. I mean, what more do you need? And it seems like Enough. And Saul, he starts off well. He he wins an important battle against the Ammonites, showing that he's got strong national defense credentials. He shows mercy to some fellow Israelites who don't want him as their king, uh, showing that he is a compassionate leader. And then he seems to be a spiritual man and and someone who cares about God. And so the religious voting bloc, they support him as well. Everything seems to be going well. People are happy to have a king at last. Israel is preparing for a big battle with uh, with their arch enemies, the Philistines, who live uh, on the coast to the west. And Saul's army—it's small, it's ill-equipped, they're not prepared—but they're hoping that God will come to their aid. And when Samuel meets them at Gilgal to initiate prayers and to offer sacrifices before the battle, but Samuel doesn't call on t- doesn't come on time. Saul's army begins to desert. They look at this large, well-equipped, well-trained military machine that's about to attack them. And verse 4 says that they hid. (laughs) His soldiers run. It says they they hide in caves and thickets and rocks and holes in the pits. I mean, they're terrified. And Saul knows that he needs to do something to, to stop his army from deserting. so he offers the prayers and sacrifice. It's a big mistake. That was something only Samuel was to do. Samuel arrives, he finds out what Saul has done, and he's furious. He tells Saul that he has broken God's commandment and that God will now begin to look for a new leader, a man who will be after God's own heart. And then he says these, uh, these now famous words in chapter 15. He says, Has the Lord as great a delight in your burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord, He says, surely to obey is better than sacrifice. See, God isn't looking for our religious rituals. He's looking for men and women who will follow him with all of their heart. And it wasn't so much that, that he did what only a priest was supposed to do, is that he simply would not obey God And this is the beginning of a downward spiral of Saul's leadership. His disobedience leads to anger. His his anger leads to, to bitterness. His bitterness leads to murder. And his murder leads to madness. Saul may stand tall, but he falls hard. Some years ago, Melinda and I were out shopping and uh, I picked up a candle. It was a candle shop. And I picked it up to see if it would fit into this candle holder that I wanted to buy. And, and it slipped on my hand and it fell on the floor. And I reached down to, to pick it up. And I noticed the candle was broken. And do you know my first thought? Put it back. Nobody saw it. Nobody cares. Put it back on the shelf. I know what you're all thinking right now. This guy's our pastor. <laughs> you ever had that thought? Well, I looked at Melinda and I said, well, I guess we just bought this candle. But I'll tell you, I didn't want to pay for it. And all the way to the checkout counter, this little voice kept hounding me over and over again. Put it back. Nobody knows. Put it back. See, God is pleased with integrity because God is absolute integrity. The Bible says that God cannot lie, that integrity is his very nature. And, and God hates deception because it is the opposite of who God is. You see, deception devours, destroys, and it distorts our hearts. And it keeps us from becoming all that God Means for us to become. I think even in the small little things. In fact, I would say mostly in the small things is where it counts the most. How do we keep our integrity? I think it's by being the same on the outside as it is in the inside. You see, I think the problem with all of these these leaders was they simply would not keep God's command. And I don't know about you, but it's something that I have to do each and every day. When I wake up in the morning, the first thing I say is, God, I surrender this day to you. I want to live the Christian life. I want to be a light, but God, I can't. There are too many voices in the back of my mind saying, put it back. No one will notice. And so I have to surrender myself to him. Each and every day, making that decision that I'm going to go God's way today. Now, maybe for others of us here, maybe you, you, you've never even done that. You, you don't even really know what it means to surrender to God. And, and, and maybe so for some of us, our next step is to simply take that step of trusting God with our lives, of making Jesus the Savior and Lord of our life, and letting him come in and to make us a new person. He will do that. He's done that with many people, people here, and he can do that with your life as well. But my challenge to all of us here today is to commit ourselves to being a representative of God to your neighbors and your friends. My friends, this world desperately needs some examples of holiness because we are up to our necks in scandals and in greed and in violence and in political and and racial strife. We desperately need people of character in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in in our government, in our churches, in our places of business. See, I I honestly believe that without you, this world is in serious trouble. Let's influence other people for good. Let's make a difference with how we live our lives. Let's live a life that is integrated with, with God's help and with God's blessing. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit he can change change us and transform us into something into someone that will honor him. Let's ask for that right now shall we? Come Holy Spirit make us new people make us a new creation may we each and every morning wake up and surrender the day to you help us to be an people of influence wherever we are in our thoughts and in our words and in our deeds. Amen.